Scott, we just love you, man. Very proud of you. And uh, it's a big deal. This is a difficult program, and uh, it is no joke. And so um, I'm always so proud of the, the men that rise to the occasion and give themselves over to what is required, and they just keep putting one foot in front of the other and showing up. And, uh, you know, as I've said before, you guys know part of my testimony is this kind of ministry, faith-based uh, discipleship ministry for uh, recovery. And God really got a hold of me at a program similar to what we have here. And so that's why we have such a burden for it, in part. And uh, so we, this bridge ministry has just been such a blessing. We love you guys. We love to see what God's doing in you and through you. And uh, it's always something to celebrate when we get to see a, um, a graduation, right? And so praise the Lord. All right, one other thing um, by way of announcements. There's a women's... Uh, retreat, women's conference coming up one day in Monterey. It's like, uh, Laura, do you know off the top of your head, second week of October? Okay, October 14th and 15th. So our sister Laura, would you raise your hand? She's uh, kind of coordinating that and handling the, the details, the administrative stuff, and there's a lot that goes into that. So would you please connect with her if you have any questions or if you're planning on going <clears throat> so that they can be real clear on uh, you know, who's coming and kind of how to make, uh, make all of the necessary arrangements. Sound good? Yeah? Okay, good. All right. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 11. And verse... 45 we'll be picking up today. So we're doing a little bit of trying to lighten things up here a little bit and painting. We're going to be painting more of the, uh, the stage and uh, some of the ladies that are involved in decorating here. I'm watching and learning because I know nothing about it. And I got a little inspiration. I thought, I'm gonna, I never thought I'd see the day that I would go in Michael's, uh, but I did. And I saw some stuff, and there was like some pots. They were like uh, silver and copper, and it was very country looking, and I liked that, right? That resonated with me. So I got them and had them setting up, and one of our sisters was like, <clears throat> I'm sorry, but that's just too country. It looks, like, <laughs> it looks like it's meant to be in a barn. And I was like, well, I know, that's why I liked it. And she said, yeah, but you can go too far with, with that. And I'm thinking, too far? I mean, maybe Budweiser cans with bullet holes in them would be too far. But uh, I don't know about the, uh, the pots. I'm just kidding. <clears throat> so anyways, got to know my place and stay in my lane. Amen? All right. Well, um, let me pray for our study, and we will uh, we'll dig in. Father, we love you so much, and we... We thank you for all the good gifts that you pour out on us day by day. Every good gift comes from you, and we praise you and we thank you for it. We give you the glory. We give you the honor. I thank you for all my brothers and sisters, my friends in Christ here today. I thank you that we have gathered here on this day to celebrate Jesus and to gather around your word. And I pray that you would please help us, Lord. We need to hear from you today. We need to learn of you. We need to be challenged and encouraged and instructed. And we need to, to be loved by you, Father. And 
to be reminded of your grace and your mercy and your kindness and your provision, your care. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak today by your word and that we would all be blessed and encouraged. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, <clears throat> Scott, there's some uh, ringing going on back here. If you could um, level that out. Thank you, brother. So today we conclude our study of John chapter 11. And so we are going to be wrapping up this chapter. And what, what would you say the main event of this whole chapter is? If someone says to you, what is John chapter 11 about? What would be the singular event that you would just naturally shout out? That's right, Lazarus. Lazarus being raised from the grave after having been dead for four days. And in the beginning of this chapter, we saw that Jesus was very concerned for the faith of his disciples. He was going to stretch their faith through this act. And then as we went a little further, we saw Jesus' concern for the faith of Mary and Martha. And, you know, they were crushed. Uh, their expectations of Jesus were not met. Yet still in the midst of that, they expressed tremendous faith in Christ and God. And well, today we're going to look at some other folks in, the, in this setting who did not believe. They don't have faith. They reject Christ. And so it's kind of a heavy, heavy uh, little text of Scripture. And, you know, uh, but nonetheless, I think that it is uh, it's very relevant to us, even as believers. It's very relevant to us. And so what we're going to be looking at is what I'm calling unbelievable unbelief. Unbelievable unbelief. I mean, it's just shocking the kind of unbelief that we see here today in this text. But even in the midst of that, God's plan goes forward. And so unbelievable unbelief and God's unstoppable plan. I just condensed it down to uh, unbelievable unbelief. It's a long title. But you know what? It's not that shocking, really. It's not that shocking, the unbelief that we see here. It's easy to look at the unbelief of Jesus' enemies with a certain level of disbelief. It's easy to look at that and think, oh man, how could they not believe? How could they not believe when they saw the kinds of things that they saw? And we might elevate ourselves and think somehow that had we been there and seen the kinds of things they saw, we would have responded differently. But the reality is that this kind of shocking unbelief and rejection of God is in the hearts of all of humanity. It's, it's in all of us. We all at one point in time did not believe. We were rebels against God's goodness and kindness towards us. And if it weren't for the power of God calling us from death to life, we wouldn't believe either. You know, If it wasn't for God graciously drawing us and calling us out of light into darkness we wouldn't believe either. We could no more turn our hearts to God than Lazarus could raise himself from the grave. Let me repeat that. We could no more turn our hearts to God than Lazarus could raise himself from the grave. And so I think we've talked about different aspects of this, this story of Lazarus' Lazarus's resurrection, but that's, I think, another real component is the spiritual resurrection that we experience in this life that only Jesus can bring about. Amen? No one in this room could stand in front of that grave and say, Lazarus, come forth, and him to rise from the grave like that. And the same is true of spiritual resurrection, which I would argue is the most important resurrection, because the reality is Lazarus was going to die again. 
And then what? You know, it's appointed unto man who wants to die and then the judgment. And so that's what we have to be worried about truly in this life is being brought into the newness of life spiritually. Spiritually. And you know, Paul described this propensity towards unbelief in the human hearts like this in Romans 1. Listen as I read this. Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's what we do. We suppress the truth. The Bible says that we all know deep down in ourselves that there is a God, there is a Creator, there's more to life than this, and that we're accountable to Him. So what what do we do by nature? We just suppress that. We push that down. We try to ignore it. We try not to believe it. We try to drown it out with many other things. We try as hard as we can to convince ourselves that these things are not true. That is by nature what happens. Paul goes on to say that because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Paul's describing for us the process of idolatry. <clears throat> we know eternity is in the heart of man. It's, it's in us. It's built in there because we're created in the image of God. Yet what we do is we suppress that truth and we begin to worship other things. And we take the glory of God and we turn it into something like ourselves or, or animals and bugs and things like that. What Paul is describing here is idol worship, pagan idolatry. They worship these false gods of their own creation, their own making, right? Now, isn't that what the Egyptians did? Not the Egyptians, sorry, the Israelites who were taken out of Egypt. Same thing. I mean, think about this for a second. The Israelites who were delivered out of Egypt... They saw some of the most amazing things that you could ever imagine, right? All of the plagues that came down on Egypt because of God passing through the Red Sea. And still, they questioned and challenged God's goodness and provision over and over. You remember that? And they lamented having been rescued from Egypt, though they cried out for centuries that God would rescue and deliver them. They wanted to go back. They started saying, oh, you remember how good it was in Egypt? Man, can you relate with that? How many of us here have done that? God graciously rescues and delivers us out of horrible bondage, and then somehow we start looking back and thinking, oh, it was good back then, and we want to go back to that. Well, that's what they were doing. Then they rejected Moses, God's chosen leader, and they tried to overthrow him. And the first chance they got, they worshipped a golden cow and said, this is our great deliverer. This is the one that brought us out of Egypt. Now, that's, that's in the hearts of all of us. It's in the hearts of unbelievers, but that kind of stuff, it's in the heart of believers too. We still have that propensity to be drawn away and to worship other things. And that is unbelievable unbelief, if you ask me, right? Something that we all have to watch out for. In Psalms, it's described like this. In Psalm 1, um, I, think, uh, I think it's 115. In Psalm 115, verses 3 through 8. He says they take and they carve these little idols, and they give it ears, but it doesn't hear. They give it eyes, but it cannot see. 
They give it feet, it cannot walk. They give it hands, but it cannot feel or touch. And it says, you become like the thing you've made. You're blind, you're deaf, you're mute, right? And uh, that's a pretty amazing passage there, that we try to make a God that's just like us, right? They try to make a God in their own image. That's what we do. We try to make a God that would act and think and do just as we would expect him to act and think and do. And uh, the writer of the psalm says that when you make a God like yourself, you essentially become like the thing you've made. And uh, that's, that's a pretty lofty concept. In Isaiah 44, it's described like this, the futility of idolatry and rejection of God. He says, you take a tree, you cut it down, you use part of it to warm your house, you use another part of the tree to cook your food, to heat your food, and then you use the rest of it to carve an idol and you fall down and worship it and cry out for deliverance by this little thing. Now, that sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? That is ridiculous. That really puts it in perspective. But, you know, we can be guilty of the same kind of things, folks. Unbelievers and believers alike. Because we can worship all kinds of other things. It's been said that the human heart is an idol-making factory. You know, we were created to be worshipers. We were created to worship the living God. Yet we have a propensity to worship all kinds of other things. And so we got to watch that. And that's what we really see happening in the text here. It's happening predominantly to people who are uh, rejecting the knowledge of Jesus altogether. And undoubtedly we have folks here today that might even be in that very place. But you know what? There's a lot of application here for us too who have believed in Jesus. And so I trust that the Lord will really speak to us and challenge us as we walk through this text. So with that... Let's begin. Let's look at uh, verses 45 and 46. And uh, the first point uh, I would put before us here is just looking at the hard-heartedness of unbelief. And that's the root of the problem. It's the heart. The hard-heartedness of unbelief. Verse 45, it says, Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things that Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus did. Now, John here is referring to the people that had just witnessed Lazarus being raised from the dead. Remember, Mary was in the house and Martha had already gone out ahead of her to speak with Jesus. And then word was sent to Mary that the Lord was here. And so there were a bunch of mourners in the house with her. Remember, we talked about how that's that was a requirement. It's been said, I was reading a little bit more about this this week, that oral tradition says that you were actually required to have like at least two flute players or something. You had to have people there that were, you know, really ex- lamenting the loss of this person. And they would have people, obviously, that, you know, loved the family and knew the people that were there. And you would have people that were there just because that was part of the what they did. It was just kind of the... It was uh, par for the course for, you know, a funeral. And so all of these people followed Mary to the grave site because they assumed, hey, she must be going to mourn Lazarus at the grave, so we'll go with her and mourn with her there. So that's what they did. But it didn't stop there. There she met Jesus, and Jesus called Lazarus forth from the grave. And all of these people who had been there with Mary now had a front row seat to see this incredible miracle. Incredible 
And so they saw the mighty works of God. And some of the people there saw it and they believed Jesus. They believed Him, and that is glorious. But there were others there who saw it and they still didn't believe. Instead, what did they do? They went to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders, and they told on them. They reported what they had seen. You know, they, they were looking to provoke. You know, some, some people, that's, they just want to see some stuff pop off. They just want to see, see some drama, you know. I mean, in my, I don't want to get on a rabbit trail here, but, you know, I, that was me in the, in the olden days. I just wanted to see some stuff pop off. I was always on the, the front row to some drama, you know, and some of us can, can relate with that. Well, these people saw this, and they didn't believe in Jesus. Instead, they said, we're going to go to the enemies of Jesus and tell them what happened. Now, they were only about two miles away. Where this took place in Bethany, it was about two miles away from the religious hotbed of Israel, Jerusalem, where the temple was and where all of the, uh, the religious elite were. And so these people hightailed it over there a couple miles, and they said, you ain't ever going to believe what just happened, what Jesus just did. And the religious leaders, of course got very upset by this, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. Now, you would think, having seen someone be raised from the dead like that, that they would believe that Jesus was who He said He was, and that they would rejoice in that, right? That is unbelievable unbelief, that they rejected that. But again, as I said, that is typical for the human heart. Jesus gives this interesting story in Luke 16 of... Uh, the rich man and Lazarus. It's a different Lazarus. And um, they both died and went to a place. Uh, one was a place of torment, and the other place was a place of paradise called Abraham's bosom. And there they were. And uh, the poor man who had suffered all of his life, he was on the place of paradise, and the rich man was in the place of torment. And the rich man cried out that he would have relief from his torment, and there was none. And then he cried out, that if only somebody could go back and tell his brothers about this place, then they wouldn't have to come there too. He was speaking to Abraham in this story that Jesus tells, and this is what Abraham says. I'll just kind of step back. It says, Father Abraham, but if one goes from the dead, they will repent. If you send someone back to tell my brothers, and this is what he says, but he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. That's interesting. Even if one were to rise from the dead, they still would not be persuaded of the truth. And we think that's crazy, but that's what we see happening right in front of us. Lazarus rose from the grave, and they did not believe. There's all kinds of reasons that people give for unbelief, you know, um, People put many roadblocks up that have to be overcome before they will believe. Some people insist that if they saw a miracle, that they would believe. And if you believe your Bible, you already know that's not the case. It wouldn't matter. Even if they saw a miracle, they wouldn't believe. But haven't we heard people say that before? There's an interesting little uh, exchange I saw between an atheist and a, an apologist, and the atheist was actually suggesting that the resurrection, the people who saw the resurrection, they were all hallucinating simultaneously. That all of these different people were hallucinating, yet seeing the same hallucination. They were trying to give some reasoning behind why scientifically that could happen. 
And so the, the Christian apologist argued that really his fear was that what this guy was essentially saying is that no, nothing whatsoever, no amount of miracles or, or answers would cause him to believe. Nothing whatsoever, right? So then the guy responds to that and says, well, you know, I'll tell you what, if I got up tomorrow and the earth began to shake and the sky grew dark and there was this towering figure that was like as tall as a hundred Mount Everest and he called out to me and, you know, condemned me for my unbelief, so on and so forth, then I would believe I would be on the front pew of the church the next Sunday. And then the Christian apologist said to him, are you sure you wouldn't have just thought, man, I must have hallucinated that? They wanted to forget all of this. We're getting back to the Bible. We're going to take the things of God seriously. And uh, they were fundamentalists. They believed in the literal and authority, the, the literal understanding of God's Word and the authority of Scripture, right? But eventually, they became very corrupt, as we all know. They loved their position. They loved their power. They loved the prestige. And they went sideways. And so... Then you have the lawyers. Everybody heard of the lawyers? You ever heard of the scribes? Well, those are the same thing. Lawyers are scribes. Scribes are lawyers. And what they are, they were the men who would make copies of the Bible, the Old Testament. The, obviously, that's all they had at the time. And they would copy it word for word, and they would make copies of the Torah. And so that made them experts in the law, because if you had to copy it over and over, you would think that that person would be an expert in the book, Right? And so these men were also held up at times as great experts, and they were you know, looked at with great reverence and had a lot to do with the day-in, day-out practice of religion in, in Israel. So, so you have all these different elements and aspects that have developed these different groups that, that led religiously in the land. And then you have the Sanhedrin. And so what this was, this was the Supreme Court of Israel. And the Sanhedrin, it was 70 members, and it consisted of Sanhedrin and Pharisees and scribes and lawyers. Now, it was predominantly Sadducees and priests, but there was also a, a, very, um, a very powerful minority in the group, the Pharisees. And so this was the, the governing body. They exercised judicial, legislative, and executive powers in Israel at that time. They were, they were very much a big deal, right? Now, they didn't have the right to do capital punishment. That had been taken away by Rome. That's why they had to go to, to Pilate to uh, be able to execute Jesus. But everything else, they, were, they, they oversaw it. They governed that. So I, just, I lay all of this out before us to understand that something very complex, something very elaborate, something very multifaceted here had developed throughout the centuries in Israel, this system of worship and government. And they felt the need to preserve it at all cost. They felt the need to preserve this at all cost. You had all these different religious men and leaders and sects that had come together and they weren't trying to hand that over. They saw Jesus as a threat. They saw Jesus as, look, everyone's going to go to him. We're going to lose our place. What are we going to do? And so they determined that Jesus was a disruptor. However, this is interesting, as we just read they acknowledged that he had done many signs, right? Did you catch that? They acknowledged that Jesus had done all of these signs. 
It was legit. It was valid. But then they said, what do we do? Because if we let him, if he continues on like this, everyone's going to go to him and believe him. And we're going to lose our place. We're going to lose our nation. So what are they saying? They're saying, look, if everyone goes to Jesus, then we're going to lose our prestige, our power, our image. No one's going to care about the Pharisees and the Sadducees anymore. No one's going to care about the temple. And then Rome is going to see this as a huge uprising, and they will come in and they will simply destroy us. They'll take away our privileges to continue to govern ourselves as a unique entity under Roman occupation, right? And so they saw this as a very real threat, very real threat. So you know it was fear, so let's just bring it back in. Fear was at the bottom of their, their unbelief and their rejection. Fear was at the core. Self-preservation. You know what they feared? They feared change. Did you know that people don't like change? I have found that out. I, I don't know why I love change. It's just, my, I guess, my upbringing. It's always been so chaotic. I love the newness of things, I guess. But most people don't. They settle in. They don't want any change under any circumstance. And it really scares them. It scares them deeply. And so as much as they didn't like being under Roman occupation, they didn't like those kinds of things, they didn't really want it to change. Because they had their little slice of the kingdom, they had their little position, they had their little bit of power, and they wanted things to stay exactly as they were. And Jesus was nothing more than a disruptor to that. They loved the way people looked at them. They loved the image this, this very neatly uh, designed, developed image that they have created of themselves, they loved that. And they loved the recognition that they got because of it. They loved the esteem of men and the following that they had. They loved that. They had a profession. It was a good profession. They had their livelihood. They had their security. They had their comfort. And they had authority. And they did not want to cash that in. They did not want to let that go. They did not want to give that up for no reason, especially Jesus. Jesus was a threat to that, and so they were afraid. And ultimately, you know what? They loved their sin because that's what it was. They were hypocrites. Jesus had to come against them so many times because of their hypocrisy. Status, power, prestige, praise. That's what they were living for. That's what they were all about. Their hearts were not close to God. They just looked good on the outside, but Jesus said inwardly they were like dead men's bones, right? And so that was their idol. That's what they were living for. They loved these things, and they weren't going to give it up. They were standing right face to face with the truth. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, raised a man from the grave after being dead for four days, and they thought, we got to take him out. This guy's a threat. We're going to lose our position. We're going to lose our place. And you know what? They feared Rome. And that's a legitimate fear. Let me read to you. One commentator says this, The council met in order to decide what they should do with Jesus. He bore all the scriptural credential and produced all the right signs of the Messiah, yet he lacked an army. So they thought this guy was going to be a military commander. He was going to come in. He was going to overthrow and they were going to be on the right side of that. But Jesus, this guy, he, he doesn't have any of that. 
So to side with Jesus as they understood the role of Christ was to defy Rome. But to defy Rome without an army was to invite the worst kind of death. Roman generals were known to line the roads of rebel cities with the crucified bodies of its men and women and to sell their children into slavery. Now, that's hardcore. That's something to be afraid of, wouldn't you say? And so I don't fault them for that, frankly. I don't fault them for that. No doubt in my mind they took that very seriously. Rome is going to come in and they're going to do business. And we don't want to be on the receiving end of that. But you know what? They were anyway. They rejected Christ. They had Him crucified. And 40 years later, Rome came in and destroyed, leveled Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, took everybody out. 70 A.D., Titus Vespasian, the commander there, the, the general in Rome, came in and just leveled the place. So the very thing that they were afraid of, the very thing that they let kind of be the thing that kept them in part from turning to Jesus happened anyway. And they were on the wrong side of that. Not only did they still have to suffer the very immediate and physical consequences, they had to suffer the eternal consequences. You know? Everything that they feared came upon them. They still had to suffer the consequences. Now listen. Now hear me on this. I don't care what you have in your life. I don't care how invested in it you are. Any particular sin or lifestyle or relationship or career. You have to be willing to forsake that for God. If it's keeping you from Him. Deep commitment to anything that is keeping you from God is no reason not to turn from it. I know that's scary. I know that there are many people who are not willing to pay that price. They know that coming to they know us the truth. They know Jesus is the truth. They know it in their inmost being, but they know that believing in Jesus is going to cost them something. It's going to mean severing a relationship or walking away from a potential opportunity or a job or who knows what. You know what that is. And they say, I'm not willing to pay that price. But that cannot be. Look, fear of the outcome is never an excuse to not do the God-honoring thing. Fear of the outcome is never an excuse not to do the God-honoring thing. Chuck Swindoll kind of makes this statement and then asks some questions. And so let me, uh, let me read this to us. Now listen to this. This is pretty heavy. Chuck Swindoll says, Seek the truths that you most fear to find. Seek the truths that you most fear to find. They hold the greatest promise of freedom and the greatest threat of destruction. Let me read that again. Seek the truths you most fear to find. They hold the greatest promise of freedom and the gravest threat of destruction. If you ignore them, if you reject them, they will in the end be the gravest threat of destruction to us. But if you know the truth and you believe the truth and you surrender to the truth, it will set you free. It may change everything, but it's worth it. Is it not worth it? It's worth it. So then he asks, what truths have you been resisting? What is it that you know is true, yet for some reason you refuse to surrender to it or believe it? 
What voice have you been silencing or keeping at a distance to avoid hearing what you instinctively know to be true? So there's all kinds of voices around us in the world that are just screaming and crying out against the things that we know to be the truth. Are we listening to those voices? What voices in our heads, perhaps, are we listening to? You know, what is it that we're listening to instead of listening to what we know is true? Question, have you drowned out your own conscience with activity or work or relationships or some other kind of escape? Is it that you know the truth, you're too afraid to embrace the truth, and therefore you drown out the truth with all kinds of other things just to keep you busy and distracted? Do you ignore the inner voice of reason warning you to stop some of the behaviors that you know to be wrong? I mean, look, we should all be able to say we've, we've been there, done that, even as believers. As believers, we know that sometimes we can get caught up in things, caught up in things, that just have us twisted up in a place we don't need to be, and we ignore it. We ignore the voice of reason. So is there something that we're holding on to? Is there something that we're clinging to? Is there something that keeps us from entering into the fullness of God's blessing and what He has for us? Third point, I'm going to pick up the pace here. The futility of unbelief. God is unstoppable. Amen? No amount of unbelief is going to stop His plan. Let's be on the right side of it. Amen? I want to be on the right side. I want to be on God's side. Verse 49. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but he also, but also that he would gather together in one children of God who were scattered abroad. So in response to this critical question, what do we do about Jesus? Caiaphas steps forward. Now Caiaphas, as we're told, is the high priest. And so... That name should be familiar to us, Caiaphas and Annas. Annas was the high priest before him. Annas was his father-in-law, and they are the ones that are very much involved with and kind of overseeing the ultimate crucifixion of Jesus. And so he, being the high priest, steps forward, and John tells us that he actually prophesies. Now, that, that is kind of a, a trip to me. Caiaphas prophesies. Now, he doesn't know he's prophesying, uh, he doesn't know that he's prophesying, but he, he is. And it's real clear what Caiaphas is saying. He's saying, look, it would be better for Jesus to die and for our nation to be preserved. But what he was prophesying as the high priest was that ultimately Jesus would be a sacrifice. It would be a sacrificial death for the nation and for the world. It's amazing to me that God used this guy. God does do that. God uses, I mean, throughout the Bible, we look at that. People that are fighting against God. Um, you remember, uh, I don't want to get on a side trail here. We don't have time. But at any rate, God can't be stopped. God won't be stopped. 
God could speak through this guy Caiaphas, and I think what this really shows us is, is that God's in control. This guy is actively speaking forth a plan to try to destroy Jesus, and what he doesn't even know is, is that he's actually prophesying of God's plan of redemption for the world. That's amazing to me. That's amazing to me. And this kind of takes me back to Genesis 50, where you remember the brothers of Joseph, they tried to take him out. They, they wanted to kill him. They sold him into slavery. And all those years later, he rose to a great place of prominence and power. And when they figured out who he was, they were just so sure he was going to take out his vengeance and kill him. You remember that story? And what did Joseph say? He said, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about as it is this day and to save many people. And so all the unbelief in the world, all the rejection against God can't stop God. Amen? Cannot stop God. I love that. What was meant for evil, God meant for good. Look, they meant evil towards Jesus. They meant it. They were very intentional about it. And God meant that same evil for the good of the world. That boggles my mind. But that's what it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. Two very real and different things going on at the same time. It's a mystery how this can be. But these men hated Jesus. They rejected Jesus. They planned to kill Jesus and take him out for self-preservation. Yet at the same time, that was God's plan. It was God's plan that Jesus would be betrayed, abandoned, rejected, tortured, crucified, mocked, and that he would die for the sins of the world, for our sins. That's amazing to me how, how God can, even, can do that. But the bottom line is God can't be stopped, amen? No amount of fear or, or rejection can thwart God's plan. So I don't know about you, I want to be used by God as one who believes I want to be like on the good side of that. I want to trust God and praise God and be available to God and have God use me uh, as, a, as a vessel of honor, as it says in 2 Timothy, right? I don't want to be a vessel of dishonor. I used to be used by Satan mightily. I don't want that anymore. I want to be used by God to further His plans. All right, well, moving on, the sad outcome of unbelief. The sad outcome of unbelief, limiting what God might do. So if I've lost you already, then reel it in, look up here, listen, pulling a, a Charles Stanley on you, look up here. Um, what is the outcome of unbelief? Limiting what God might do. Now God's going to do what God's going to do, and I praise God for that, but I think that God can do more. Now this is, again, this is one of those crazy mysteries between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, right? Man's freedom. God is going to do what God is going to do, and I praise God for that. But I also think that sometimes God, there are things God wants to do that maybe He can't or won't do. Jesus leaves the public eye into an obscure place, and that was at the... As, as a result of rejection. He knew. He knew that 
it was his time that they were going to try to kill him, and so, but it wasn't God's time yet for him to die, and so he goes off into a place of obscurity. I want to read Matthew chapter 13 to us. It's a few, few verses here, so just stick with me. But I think we kind of see the same thing. And uh, there's just this little verse that's attached to the very end. It says, When he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue. And they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brother James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. So Jesus is back in his hometown. And he's in a synagogue and he's reading, speaking, preaching. And the people, they're like, we know this guy. We've seen him all his life. We know his parents. We know his brothers and sisters. Who does this guy think he is? They don't believe him. They reject him. They, in fact, they were offended at him, we're told. And so Jesus says that a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Now listen to this. Now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. It's as if there were things that he wanted to do, but he could not, would not do because of their disbelief, their unbelief, their rejection. And so there, as the, the leaders had conspired and determined that they weren't going to believe Jesus, they were going to kill him, he goes off into obscurity. Here we're told that Jesus was rejected by his people that he grew up around, and you know he could have done many mighty works there, but he didn't because of unbelief. And I just think about in my own life. You know, how does this apply to me? How does this apply to us? I think that we can put ourselves in a place where God's blessing flows out on us fully. It may not always look like what we want it to look like, but it's good. But I think we can also put ourselves in a place where God's chastening hand is upon us. I just look at my own daughters and think, man, I, uh, I just want to bless them with all of my might. But sometimes I cannot bless them because of their, their behavior, because of their actions. Parents in here, you know what I'm talking about. And I, I just, I can't get that through their heads. They're too young to understand it. But it's like, if you only knew the blessings that will flow out upon you, if you would just act right, you know, but you don't. And so consequences abound. And so I think with Jesus, you know, there are times where, you know, we're just in a rough spot. We're in a tough spot. And we need, we need him to do what he's going to do because we just don't have it in us to do what we, what we need to do. But I think that there are times when, man, we could see God do so much more in our lives if we would just walk uprightly before Him and not be distracted with stupid things and lesser things and idols, you know, the things that we cling to in this life because we're afraid. What if we lose this? Isn't that amazing to think the things that we want to cling to out of fear, what God actually has for us, what He has in store for us in this life, but especially in the life to come. If we would just release, let go, surrender, surrender, trust Him, believe in Him. He's worthy, amen? And we cling to these little things, these little idols, these little relationships, these little whatever it is 
these little goals, these little ambitions, these little dreams that we have down here, this my little slice of kingdom on this earth, my security, my comfort, right? We cling to that when God says, don't you know what I have for you? Don't you know the blessings that would be yours if you would just trust me and do what I ask of you? And so often we settle for the lesser things. We cling to the things here on this earth right in front of us. We refuse to let go of that and to open ourselves up and to open our hands up to what God has for us. And I think that's so true for people who haven't trusted Christ. There's a very real component to that, you know, fear of what you might lose and fear of the unknown. I mean, I, you know, that's something that, you, that we all have to, to come to grips with. Now, for me, coming to faith in Christ, that was kind of an easy move to make because I knew what my life was apart from Christ, and I just couldn't do it anymore. I didn't want that life anymore. I hated that life. I felt like I was a slave to that life, and I wanted to be set free from that life. And I finally came to the place where I realized there was only hope in one, in Jesus Christ, right? But then, you know, you come into this, the newness of life as a Christian, and then you find yourself distracted, and you're clinging to other things, silly things, things that just aren't important, you know? But I pray that if there's anybody in this room today who doesn't know Jesus and there's something that has been hindering you, whether you've been telling yourself that it's just, I need my questions answered, or I need to see Christians behave better, or I need to see a miracle, or I'm afraid of what I have to lose. You know what? You're going to lose it all anyways. Can I tell you that? You're going to lose it all anyway. There's this quote. I love it. It says, He is no fool who gives away what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. We can't keep any of this stuff down here, folks. We're going to lose it all, and then whose will it be, right? And so you're not a fool to walk away from that in order to gain something that will never be taken away from you, something that is so greater, something that is of so much more worth and value, King Jesus and all that he has to offer us in this life and in the next. Amen? Well, we'll close there. And so I just want to, you know, I want that to be our prayer. May that be the prayer of our hearts and our lives. That if there's something that we need to lay down at the feet of Jesus, we would lay it down. If there's something that we need to let go, something that's hindering from us, us from coming more fully into His blessing, that we would repent of that and turn from it. That we would pray and cry out, Lord, soften my heart. My heart, is, my heart is hard. Remember that guy that said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief? God honors those kinds of prayers because they're honest prayers. And that's what God wants. He just wants us to be honest and be real. You know why? Because He already knows anyways. And so to be honest with where we're at, to be honest with God, and to ask God to do for us what we can't even do for ourselves. If you don't know Jesus, if you haven't surrendered your life Today's the day. Believe Him. Trust Him. Call upon Him. You don't have to have all this stuff figured out. Just simply say, Lord, I, I, I have been holding on to other things, and I want to let that go, and I want you, Jesus. I want you. I need the forgiveness of God. I want what you have for me, and I'm going to follow you. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to surrender. I'm going to surrender. Amen.
So let me pray. Jacoby, you in the room? Would you come on up, brother? Father, we love you. I thank you for this word. It's a very challenging text. It's a very heavy one, to be sure. But for those of us who have been who have been called out of this bondage of unbelief, it's a great reminder from where we have come. And it's a great reminder, Lord, that we, we want to keep ourselves in a place of trust and belief in you and before you. Perhaps anyone in here who doesn't know you, who have, hasn't really surrendered, I pray, God, that you would move upon their hearts here and now. Meet them where they're at. Maybe there's fear, fear of the unknown, maybe a very real and legitimate fear, but there is no fear in this life important enough to keep us from the main thing, the most important thing, and that's you. And so I just pray that you would open their hearts and their minds to you, Jesus, this very moment, and that they would say yes to you, that they would ask for your forgiveness and they will trust you for eternal life. We love you, Lord, and we thank you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.